Welcome back to another episode of the People of Packaging Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Peak. Today, I am joined by Jordan Fengel, who is over sustainability at Tetra Pak. And we get into a lot of different questions around cartons and sustainability. And he gives a ton of resources, not just from the Carton Council, but where you can find different LCAs, uh, all sorts of really, really great, valuable information when it comes to cartons. And something that I didn't learn about or I didn't realize is the efficacy around carbon impact of transporting uh, specifically dairy products in cartons. So you want to make sure that you tune into this episode uh, that is is actually being brought to you by our sponsor, Specrite. Uh, we're going to be announcing a really, really cool partnership between Specrite uh, and Compass on our episode next week. And so I have a couple of really incredible guests there. Uh, you can learn about Specrite by going to specrite.com backslash PKG and what they are doing to help bring a democratization to sustainability information is really, really amazing. So make sure you go to specrite.com, S-P-E-C-R-I-G-H-T.com backslash PKG. So you can be on their uh, website. You can be on their email. There it is. You can be on their email. Uh, you can get all of these updates and also make sure that you tune into the People of Packaging podcast next week. All right. For this week, let's get to this episode with Jordan. All right, I'm super, super stoked because I get a lot of questions uh, that this man is going to be able to help us answer here on the People of Packaging podcast. Uh, I've got Jordan Fengel from Tetra Pak. Did I say your last name right? I don't know why uh, I don't ever ask these questions. Butchered. It's Fengel. It's okay. It's a soft Fengel? Yeah. Uh, sorry, Jordan Fengel. <laughs> um, I've got Jordan Fengel. There we go. From Tetra Pak on, uh, on the podcast. So I uh, appreciate you coming on here, Jordan. No, it's, it's great to be here and excited to talk with you. You're, you're a well-known podcast. This is my first packaging podcast to be on, so it's, it's great to break the ice with you. Man, that's awesome. I, that's pretty common. There's not a ton of us out there. So, uh, but you know, shout out. You should you should jump on like Corey Connor Sustainable yeah, Packaging Podcast, Avelio Matos. We we uh, we like to. He's got the package design unboxed. It would be it'd be great. So. Um, yeah, would love to kind of dive in. I've got, you know, a specific question that I get asked a lot about, you know, Tetra packs that we're going to get into, but let's sort of just establish a baseline other than you have a soft G Fengel, um, in your name. Uh, you know, just what, what's a little bit about, tell me a little bit about your background. What's your role at Tetra pack? Um, I'll, I might dive in and ask a few questions regarding that, but the floor is yours, Jordan. Right on. Yeah, again, Adam, thanks for having me. So, you know, I have an interesting background. Um, I come from actually the medical industry. So I was a paramedic for over a decade. And, um, you know, out of, as I was working my way out of the medical field, it was either become a doctor or, or go into environmental management. And the, the area that I was working in Austin, um, you know, fell under the universal recycling ordinance. So I joined the green team. I was, you know, I grew up in California, moved to Texas to become a paramedic. And it really matched up systems-based thinking. And so where medicine, all the systems have to work together, I found the same thing in uh, material management. So that's why I really jumped on the opportunity because uh, there's not a lot of bleeding and death and, and the craziness that goes on with, with recycling, but there's still problems to solve. And again, all systems have to work. 
otherwise we're kind of in the system that we're in right now. Um, so with that, right. So, uh, you know, growing up in California, definitely an advocate of recycling, you know, knew all about it since the you know, early or actually late eighties, uh, you know, painting the chasing triangles on the school building. Uh, you know, so I, I've been kind of on the, the, the forefront of where consumers are you know, pushing industry and pushing the, the narrative, listening to a lot of the, the NGO groups out there of, of, you know, what's wrong with everything with recycling and, and you know, pointing the finger a lot. Uh, and then I got my degree and I joined actually the city of Georgetown. It's a little town right above Austin. I ran their pro program for about four years and we, you know, invoked the, the circular economy. It's really when the Ellen MacArthur Foundation got launched and they were doing really great things. So we brought that. And this is a very conservative county in Texas. And we really based on what we were doing with material management on economics. And that's mm -hmm. how you could sell recycling in an area where it's not a, uh, you know, a green or a left or, you know, it, it doesn't become politicized. It's actually you move materials because it's good for the economy. It's good for the landfills. Um, from that opportunity, I saw the, you know, the, the state recycling organization had an opening for the executive director. So I went and took that role and ran that for about three years. Um, met the Carton Council, met Tetra Pak, the Scott Byrne was the, the former in my position where I'm in right now. And um, you know, saw on LinkedIn that, that he was hanging up his hat here and moving on. And so jumped at the opportunity to, to join the corporate world. And, and now here I am, uh, basically one year into this role. Um, and I, I will say by far, this is the, the best company I've ever worked for as far as what they do uh, in, in the value of, of packaging, but also how they treat their employees and what they're doing for really sustainability in general and the sustainability transformation uh, by 2030 that they have their goals set on. Mm, all right. We're going to dive into those too. So uh, you are, are you still in Texas then or have, did you have to relocate? Yeah, I'm still in Texas. Yeah, we just reloc I relocated up to the Denton area where the, the headquarters are for, for Tetra Pak, North America. Also, I believe the home of the University of North Texas. Is, is that is. correct? UNT. Yeah, that's right. I don't know why I know that, but I do. It's <laughs> part of this random useless knowledge that's sort of just floating around in my brain. Uh, yeah. That's great. Um, and so you've been, what's your, what's your uh, title over there at Tetra Pak? That makes sense. Yeah, I forgot that part. So I am the sustainability manager for the U.S. and Canada for Tetra Pak, but then Tetra Pak is also part of the Carton Council organization. They were one of the founders back in 2009, and that uh, consists of SIG, Elipac, Evergreen, and Tetra Pak, and I'm the director of government affairs, so I do uh, anything and everything to do with the legislative matters, which uh, we know is, is a very um, pertinent topic right now with Maine and Oregon both passing, you know, packaging EPR, and, and the doors are wide open for this session that we already see uh, over I'd say a dozen states right now are geared up to to try to push through packaging EPR. Interesting. So the you said something earlier that I think is really valuable uh, for for people to understand, and I think a lot of the people that listen to this podcast, it's not you know just it's not like a casual listen, right? We tend to have a lot of people who are in the packaging industry, so I think people in the packaging industry, in some degree, understand this. But you you connected economics to recycling, and if if people don't realize that that's a really, really valuable and important connection to make, I say this constantly on the podcast, there's nothing sustainable about going out of business um, because you don't have a company any longer, right? So economics in terms of affordability, economics in terms of value at the end, it's not all, it's not pure altruism that we recycle things um, now that we don't sort of have our 
um, our off-ramp to China that we can just divert all this stuff. Like we've got to actually do something. And so um, what was that conversation like seeing as you still play a role in, you know, kind of governmental affairs? What's that conversation like with a municipality or a city connecting the economics of recycling to, you know, to the the politics of recycling, I guess? Yeah, and it's, so it's it's multifaceted. It's not just recycling, you know, brings in the economics or, or makes for the case of economics. I mean, you connect it to the consumer where their bill has to do with their city's efforts and involvement in recycling. So, which also correlates to landfill diversion. If landfills start filling up, tipping fees go up, that's all going to roll back down to the consumer or the resident. And so when you're explaining to policymakers or municipalities, you know, not only does it help with keeping consumer bills lower and also the municipality's bill lower as far as getting rid of the material, but then you also bring in the demand. So you can bring in in markets, you can bring in businesses, you can bring in recyclers, and that contributes in tax dollars, that contributes in new labor, that contributes to people spending money in the town. Because, I mean, honestly, there's actually people that when they heard of the city of Georgetown, it was one of the first cities that adopted 100% renewable energy in the U.S. And again, a very highly conservative area. So it's, it was really unheard of. But there are there are eco tourists essentially that that go and travel and look for these you know what is this town doing and so you know I attached to we could probably bring in tourism dollars also for showing how we're responsible with our material management uh, and the programs that we have within the city facilities the education we do to consumers but also bringing in the recyclers the connecting with the material recovery facilities and and again uh, the in markets the paper mills the plastic mills Texas has a lot of of valuable strong in markets for all commodities, glass, uh, plastic, aluminum, um, all metals, and, and then paper-based uh, packaging as well. So it was easy to connect the economics of material management, not just recycling, just the whole circular matter material uh, movement into why. You know, and I think Simon Sinek says it really well of people know how, people know what, but often people don't know why. And so you connect that why, and it really solves a lot of the ambiguity that, that, that people have about what they're doing. Yeah, no doubt. I love that book, by the way. Uh, Simon yeah, Sinek is, is it, was, it was a transformative book for me as well. So with your work then, and I want to dive in a little bit more on Tetra Pak, but let's hang out here for one quick second. So with your work on the Carton Council, uh, you know, you mentioned EPR and sort of what what impacts that's going to have. I mean, I look at extended producer responsibility and and go, okay, once these states start to really um, enact some of these things, it's almost going to be impossible for there to not be some sort of federal legislation because it just creates so much confusion for brands. Um, Similar to, I had uh, Kate Kaladova um, on and she was talking about a lot of like labeling laws, like Vermont passed a labeling law and it all of a sudden it was a, um, I can't remember, was it a... um, I don't know. It, it was it was some sort of random labeling law that Vermont passed and the federal government had to act and, and they they made it a federal law. So I thought that was at least fascinating to to see what happened because it would have crippled the Vermont's food production, basically. So uh, as as you're as you're looking at doing something similar with, you know, with EPR, is there is there a way to make similar connections with, you know, maybe maybe people who 
would would not be in favor or you know who who would maybe be against extended produce responsibility from an economic perspective on why you know sort of shifting the balance of the the economics onto producers rather than brands or or the other way right where it's maybe even we need we need to we need to keep putting pressure on consumers because and not have EPR. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of curious what those conversations are like from a Carton Council perspective. Right. And, you know, and I, I'd like to comment earlier on your, on your thing of, you know, maybe this would actually bring federal, look at the recycling system at hand, right? So it's been around for over 1990s. So over, over 30 years, and, and we still don't have anything federally guiding mm-hmm. the states. And so we have this patchwork uh, unharmonious like system where everything is basically causing everything that we see confusion lack of in markets aged infrastructure uh, but EPR you know I think crafted right um, that's actually going to you know we believe it'll help industry and bring the systems together but for example it's night and day between Oregon and Maine you know Maine is very uh, I would say industry unfriendly in, in that it's going to be crafted by the state. Industry doesn't really have a lot of input. Uh, we just basically have to have a PRO and abide by whatever is given to us. Whereas in Oregon, you know, the industry actually gets to get in there, uh, be creative. And we all understand the system. We know the system. We know what it, it takes. We're not just making packages, right? A lot of us come from backgrounds of municipalities and state recycling. So we all have this experience that we can put in and go, you know, this is what works. This is what doesn't work. Uh, and also coordinating with the state agency to see what they've done and how that all works. So it's, it's collaborative instead of uh, prescriptive. And so mm. where I'm running with this is, is um, you know, in, in, we're a manufacturer. So this is going to affect the brands that use our product. And so that's something that we're we're working on it. And as far as the Carton Council, we're neutral to, to extended producer responsibility. We don't advocate for it, but we don't also advocate against it. Uh, we just want to make sure that cartons in whole are just treated fairly and equitably. And, and I think that goes with all the other trade organizations. You know, some may say they're, they're, po, they're pro or, or, you know, against the EPR, but really I think they're out there to make sure that their package is accepted in the system. There's no uh, unnecessary fees or penalty, penalties based on, you know, misconceptions um, and, and bad data, bad science, uh, you know, on the 1583 commission in, in California, uh, Jeff Donlevy, you know, he, he mentioned in, in one of the, the, the live hearings that the reason that cartons weren't recyclable is because they have wax on them. Well, wax hasn't been on a carton since JFK was president. And so we, you know, there's to this day, we have people saying incorrect information, which then spreads like wildfire and people are like, well, mm-hmm. they have wax, they can't be recycled. And it's completely not true. And so, you know, EPR should bring in some kind of standardization, should they bring in some approaches that are going to work. But back to my early statement, it's patchwork and it's going to be patchwork. We see, you know, over 12 states this year that are going to try to, you know, modeling off of what they saw in New York that didn't pass, but Maine did pass. And here's some bits out of Washington. And here's, it's like Frankenstein bills are going to be kind of coming out. And um, to me, that's problematic. So yeah. I think industry is actually hoping that there might be something at the federal level to help guide the states in here's what we do, here's how we do it. And again, here's why we do it. I apologize, it was a trash truck passing by, but you know, it's, it's that's, that's ironic though. It's funny. It I, is ironic. <laughs> I like that the trash truck is passing by during this conversation. For public services out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, well, it, you know, that's it, it's, I've, I've never really dove into the conversation on this, on this depth. So that's super helpful. So from a, uh, let's kind of hang out there then and, but pivot a little bit towards Tetra Pak because I know that I get a lot of questions 
regarding, you know, regarding cartons, you, you know, liquid cartons, basically, right? And I know it's not always liquid, but I get a lot of questions about that. I have a lot of questions. My kids ask me questions. Um, you know, my my kid, each of my kids is like, hey, pop, can can I put this in the recycle bin? Or does it go in the special place where we have to drive it somewhere like glass? Like I can't, I have to put glass into a separate container and then pile up those containers and then drive it to our transfer station so that it can be properly recycled, right? Which is not a lot of people are going to put that kind of effort forward. So um, I get a lot of similar questions about um, about Tetra Pak cartons. And so what, obviously you're, you're the director of sustainability. So maybe walk through like the sustainability journey for a brand who switches from, you know, maybe like a, uh, an HDPE or a PET container over to a Tetra Pak. What, where is that? Where, like, why is that beneficial from a sustainability perspective? Um, maybe starting with the front of life, because that's the stuff that people miss. I think a lot. Um, we don't we don't spend a lot of time talking about that because consumers are like, "What do I do with this?" That's really their only question. They don't particularly care. So, uh, walk me through what that looks like. Definitely, and I think that's something that that I really am stoked about working for Tetra Pak in that there's a holistic approach to sustainability. It's not just focused on end of life management or recycling. Um, and that's not like shaming any other commodity group, but again, this it's the pride that I, I think that this organization really does well. And so right, starting from sourcing. So our materials are sourced from uh, renewable materials. They, they constantly are replenished. They constantly regrow while they're growing, they absorb carbon. So in LCA modeling, we actually can show you know, capture of carbon, which is a, a better offset and gives us a little bit better you know, uh, portfolio and, and, and stance as far as greenhouse warming potential. So the, the renewable materials are great, but also if we, we do have some plastic in our, in our cartons. You know, they're, they're poly-coated. But in the transition to the most sustainable package by 2030, we will have a mono-based, plant-based plastic. And that comes right now, all of our plant-based plastics are Bonsuco certified, grown in Brazil, in Southeast Brazil, a thousand kilometers away from the Amazon. So no Amazon forest has been you know, cut down just to grow sugarcane to make our plastic. So it's very sustainable, again, using rainwater and while it grows, capturing carbon. So it's a really good um, you know, upfront ability to show that the materials that we use are, are sourced responsibly and they're renewable and they really are uh, beneficial when choosing a packaging type. Uh, of course, we also use aluminum. So, I mean, I'm not going to like discard that out of there, but we also helped form the Aluminum Stewardship Institute. So we, now knowing that bauxite mining is very intensive, we have this ASI standard that we have our suppliers abide by, which is, you know, really making sure that there's eco-protection, uh, land stewardship, uh, economy, making sure labor is fair. And then we have a, a planned transition where we are going to divest from the fossil fuel-based plastics as well as aluminum foil. And in eight and a half years is, is our, is our timeframe uh, where the package will be about 95% fiber content. And then again, plant-based plant -based plastics, and that's it. And that still will provide you uh, with my actually next point on why it's sustainable is uh, distribution of the material. And so using aseptic te technology, which was formed in the 1960s by Tetra Pak, Dr. Robin, uh, Ruben Rousing, it actually extends the shelf life of products such as milk, 
and juices and different things. So you can put milk in an ambient store or a shelf, uh, you know, package that sits on a store shelf in non-refrigerated uh, environments and last a good 12 to 16 months while, while still obtaining the same, uh, you know, nutrition content, the taste, uh, quality, all about what people expect out of having a product out of a package um, without having to use refrigeration. And so that's actually a huge carbon offset of not having to have uh, storage at the warehouse after you produce it, and then trucks that are refrigerated, and then going into a grocery store with refrigeration. You can eliminate all of those refrigeration needs. And again, that's very carbon intensive. And we're one of the few developed countries that, that still have a really strong um, cold supply chain, basically a distribution supply chain for, for products. And so um, it's, a, it's a great sustainability point that you can make yeah. with soups and everything else. Then you go into transportation. So you put it into a truck. Well, cartons are, are traditionally either rectangular or square. So per pallet, you can get more product onto a pallet. Also, the product to package ratio is lower. It's, a, again, not as heavy as a, a metal or a glass. Um, and then you get into that whole recyclability at the end, which the Carton Council has done a great job at since 2009 of building in markets, of getting the whole connection between the material recovery facility and the municipalities uh, to the in markets uh, and making sure that we're recyclable. And so to your point of having to like take it somewhere else and do a drop off, uh, you know, we have over 61 household, 61% household access. And per the FTC Green Guides, we can use that unqualified just please recycle logo. Um, people are able widely across the US and in Canada just to throw it in the curbside bin and it gets recycled and then uh, that bailed up and sent to one of seven in markets that we have in the US. And we're hopefully, hopefully are going to be able to um, publicly announce around two more um, Q1 or Q2 in 2022. That's awesome. The, the stuff that you mentioned at the beginning of that uh, is I, I, I referred to it as like the unsexy part of sustainability, but it's really where the, the, the story I think is most valuable, right? So where, where you look at like food waste as the third largest contributor to, to greenhouse gas emissions in, in the world. And so, it, it, you know, prolonging, like prolonging shelf life of food that traditionally had a, a, a very, quick expiration date is mm -hmm. huge from an environmental perspective, right? So the, the, if it's a dairy product, that dairy is going to take, it's going to be about whatever, I think the number is like 10 to 12 X more uh, greenhouse gas emissions to manufacture that than it is the actual packaging. And so if the packaging is degrading the, the shelf life of the product and then it's getting tossed, it doesn't matter how quote unquote great the packaging was for the product in terms of, <clears throat> sorry, <coughs> in terms of the packaging, like it's recyclability or whatever it is, man, I got something stuck in my throat. Hang on a second. No, it's all good. All right. Let me write that down so I can take that out. <laughs> um, so it doesn't matter how, how great the end of life of the packaging is, if it's degrading the value of the product, right? That's bad. That's really bad for the environment. It's bad for people, especially when it comes to food and beverage products. So, but the thing I had never actually thought about until you said this, and I hope that this triggered some more thoughts for people who are listening, is the lack of refrigeration. I remember I talked to uh, the, it was the director of sustainability at New Belgium when I lived in Fort Collins, 
And they, they said, you know, our largest problem from a sustainability perspective is refrigeration. The fact that people want to drink cold beer right when they get it. If people didn't want to do that, if they were okay with just buying, you know, room temperature beer, we'd be good. We, we, would, we would have a huge win, but that was their biggest problem at the time. This was a while back. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, looking at cold chain transportation in the U.S., which is, which is especially in like developing countries like with, with booming populations like India and China, mm-hmm. where if you're trying to transport goods that have to be kept cold, those goods don't make it oftentimes. And it's, it's absolutely devastating from a greenhouse gas perspective. So I, and, and then, you know, just talking about the pallet stuff, right? Like pallet configurations and, and maximizing trucking efficiencies. These are just things that I don't think a lot of, certainly consumers never think about it, right? Like I'm just thinking in my head, like, oh man, I do buy like single, we have five kids, right? Like I buy, packaging that is right off of the shelf and i never actually thought oh i don't have to buy this same thing from a refrigerator at the store until right now and i'm like yeah that's a huge win and had never even thought about that till right now so that that's such a great point if you don't mind then let's dive into you were mentioning the the end of life which is where the consumers i think get sort of hung up so um when 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 you talk about like let's say you're part of the not, not 61% of the household. So is that, is that because the, if you you, like the major cities all have programs, which is huge, right? So like, you know, New York city, LA, that they have programs, but like, I know at least in Salt Lake, I can't curbside recycle that. Um, At least that's what I was told. So it doesn't, it just ends up either landfilled or I've got to ship it, I think, to Denver, which, you know, doesn't doesn't really happen. So what what are some of these efforts that are going on to increase that 61 percent to get a little bit bigger? Or what do you suggest for people to do who are maybe in my in my situation? Right. And so there are gaps and we we definitely um, are, are cognizant of that. And that's basically my, <clears throat> my day job is, is to not only work on legislation for the Carton Council, but, you know, connecting the, the in markets with the municipalities, with the MRFs. And I think that's some of the, the problems we have are, is that, you know, and this is not like a, sh- a shame on, on the material recovery facility industry, but they, they can kind of pick and choose on, on what they want to accept and, and how they want to accept it and the price they're going to pay for you know, the material once it's bailed up. And, and if it's not a good enough price, well, you know, maybe they don't want to do it. And so we work with them to try to, to tell the, the story of the value that there is in the market demand. Again, there's a lot of just misconceptions about there about, you know, it's, there is no in markets. Well, we have seven. We started off with one in 2009 and, and in, in, again, over in a decade, excuse me, we have now seven of them. And so there's a couple in Canada, there's one in Mexico, and then the rest are here in the, in the United States. And so, um, but those gaps, that, that's where we have to go in there and talk with the, the local municipalities. We have to go talk with the material recovery facility, the haulers, and, and really show them that the cartons have a value. And I think this, this conversation is actually in our favor even more so now with the, the pandemic. And because the pandemic has, has played havoc on the fiber industry. Yeah. Given that schools were closed, the offices are closed, uh, there's, there's a lack of the long, high-strength bleached fiber, and that's what cartons contain. And so there is a, a, a need and a desire. You notice 
what mixed sorted office or not sorted office paper, but mixed paper was like negative $17, not even, you know, at the beginning of the, the pandemic. Now it's like over $200 a ton. And so we're seeing this demand and need for fiber, especially as brands are transitioning to more sustainable packaging choices and in, in, in boxes, cardboard, right? the e, the e-commerce with the Amazonian effect going on. So we're not Amazonian, but the Amazon effect. Um, yeah. I, I know what you meant. Yeah. So, you know, that's, I think that's where we need people to to go and, and tell their city council that they want cartons to be recycled in their area, you know, contact the material recovery facility, ask why, you know, why, why can't I recycle this? I and mean, we try every single day. We have a, a database that is not extrapolated. We have, you know, over 40,000 communities in this database and we're constantly looking at, you know, what's coming in, what's going out, and, and then how do we keep increasing it? Because that 61% is a, is a precipice, and, and I don't want to ever get below that 60%. So we constantly are driving. We have a 2025 20, goal to get up to 75% household access. So we're continuing to grow that, and then it, that gets in there again to, you know, going to talking with all of the, the policymakers, municipalities, uh, about why we, we need to tell them that the they need to explain of, of the value of cartons of the, the demand from the end markets and that um, you know our goal as the carton council is to keep beverage cartons and food cartons out of the landfill and so um, that's part of our just our everyday work that we do and, and again we know that there's gaps but that's what we're trying to address every day and I, it's not just a, a glaze over but Sure. Um, you know, there, there's some gaps and, and we just have to keep working at it and it'll help. It'll help if the community goes and, and drives those conversations well alongside of us. Got it. And, and so it, kind of my last, my last question on that, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. So in terms of community engagement is, is the, is the biggest, maybe the biggest gap right now, um, the, the fact that like just general populations are not, you know, are not demanding it? Or is the gap that, you know, you mentioned you have seven, um, you have seven uh, value streams, I guess, where these can go, is the gap that there's still an economic, going back to the economics of recycling, is there still, um, or was there maybe pre-pandemic, was there a gap in terms of what a material recovery facility could sell it for? So the, where they're going like, I don't really know. I'm sure now, there's got to be there, there's got to be a value proposition to be made there, but it, it or or is it both right? Like, are you are are we you guys are doing the work with the with the MRFs, and you need people like myself to go to you know a city council or to a state representative and say, hey, this is this would be great for us. And if so, um, is there a you know maybe a template or something that that somebody like myself could use to start creating that demand? So I, you know, I think this is a, there's a couple issues at hand with this uh, one that's, you know, the elephant in the room. And I think everyone actually is talking about it. So that's probably not the right metaphor to use, but it's transportation. And so right now it's, it's, it's hell basically to try to move materials from any place to, to someplace else. And yep. whether that be ocean bank, ocean bound or, or land bound um, often the, the, the value and the economics that you get out of material management and moving stuff to an end market are erased by the cost of having to try to get it from point A to point you know, Z, basically. Um, so that's something that, and I know that there's efforts by organizations trying to work with Congress to, to shore up the supply chain because it's affecting not only microchips and everything else, but there's just shortage of drivers, there's shortage of trucks, there's the ports that are clogged up. So it's kind of this domino effect that's really affecting all commodities in general. Yeah. Um, and the other one is education. I mean, people just don't know, but I almost, 
you know, and this is again, just me in general is saying, there's a lot of people that just don't care. And, you know, I think there's something of, of trying to get where we see like brands like Oatly, uh, you know, using funny like wording and, and verbatim on their, on their package to get people engaged. And there's the smart label from Consumer Brands Association to try to get people engaged and finding out more about their package. And, and you know, again, what goes behind the packaging and where does it need to go? Uh, we just created a 360 video for people to understand, you know, when a carton gets recycled, Here's how it goes through a paper mill and here's how it gets pulped and all these different kind of, again, giving that why, you know, a lot of people are just, they just don't understand the system. And the easiest thing for people to do in a point of, in a confusion is to just what we've all been taught, which is throw it away. And so we do have some resources. I don't know if we have a template. I think it's a great idea. I'm like, I'm going to put that down in my notes to, to do. We have a carton council um, webpage. It's recyclecartons.com. And, you know, it, it, it has a lot of good resources about recycling the process. Uh, there's a little locator to try and which we're actually updating right now to make it easier to use instead of being a zip code based, it'll be like you can type in your address and using um, ArcGIS, it'll kind of bring up your the whole street and you can select it. So we're working on making it easier for everybody because as we know, we're in, a, we're in a scrolling society where people basically have you know, less than three seconds to get someone's attention. And if you don't, you're done and you're gone. And so how do you get people to understand and value recycling when that trash can's sitting right there? Um, oftentimes they're, they're told that recycling doesn't work. And there's a lot of things that are like culminating around this. So you see on the news, the transportation. So there's just a lot of issues. And, and I think people need to hear the solution and why the manufacturers are addressing it, how the brands are participating and connecting it all together and making it part of their, their value. There is, a, there is a, of course, that group of diehard recyclers and the environmentalists that are putting their money where their values are. But the rest of society, again, um, you know, I see increased litter around, you see masks everywhere. I it just, things are kind of not where I think they were even when I grew up in the, the, the late, you know, I was from born in 78. So, you know, I've, I've kind of come up in the hole where the Indian was crying on TV and such. I don't even see those ads. We don't see, you know, pick up your litter. We don't see billboards that say you need to recycle. So that's kind of the stuff that we're working on. There's a program actually in Wisconsin through Sustained Dane. We have billboards now on the highways that, you know, recycle better, recycle more, like messaging specific to recycling. Uh, because when you're driving down the highway and you look at those billboards, and it's like, did this advertisement work? Yeah, it worked because it just caught my attention. So I'm always like, let's put some recycling stuff on there. Um, and yeah. it's all commodities on those on those billboards. So I, we're a firm believer in that the rising tide lifts all boats. I know that's an age old mantra, but we are like we're the recycling partnership says it well we're all in the bin together and so we do work with uh you know can manufacturers institute and plastics and everyone we realize that you know polypropylene needs help and thermoforms you can't write these things out of out of out of uh, the recycling stream because packaging plays in a very important role whether whatever the format is in delivering a product to consumers and so um, I think there's, again, the misconceptions and the misinformation out there just needs to be solved. And I think that's what all these trade groups are doing, specifically Carton Council for Cartons. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we grew up around the same time. I was born in 1980. And, you know, I was, I remember all of that stuff, right? Like it was, it was part of my elementary school education. And I think part of that was easier now knowing what I know about the, like we talked about, like the off-ramp that was China, where it was sort of easy to be like, yeah, I just recycle. Like I have friends to this day who are like, I just recycle everything. And I'm like, well, you, you probably can't just recycle. Yeah. Every, do you know that? And they're like, no, I just put everything in the recycle bin. And then when that gets filled up, I fill up the trash can. And I'm like, wow, that yeah. is so, you know, education is totally critical. I would love to have um, 
you know, some sort of template to reach out locally um, because we do go through quite a few cartons and, you know, I would love to have that, the ability to put those into a curbside recycling, um, you know, in, into my stream here in Utah for sure. And I'm sure there's other people, hopefully there's other people who are listening who are like, yes, um, especially given now what I know. So you have, you have educated me um, about the, the, the efficacy of the front end of, you know, of cartons uh, relating to just all of the other stuff, which I, which I really appreciate. And I kind of nerd out about for sure. So uh, that was super, super helpful. Well, Jordan, um, we are, we're running up here against it. So what are, what are, what are some ways you you talked about recycle? Uh, was it recyclecartons.com? Right. Yep. Um, and I think if you're in Canada, it's recyclecartons.ca. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. We have, we have Carton Council Canada as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I know that because somebody sent me, I posed a question on LinkedIn and somebody sent me that and they said, it's recyclecartons.ca. So I looked it up and I'm like, this is not helpful to me at all. Why did you send me this link? They're like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's .com. So uh, that was how I found out about it. Um, if it, so, so that's a, that's obviously a tremendous resource for the Carton Council in terms of Tetra Pak, you know, you mentioned you've got like a, a, a 360 video, you've got some other resources available. How would people go about getting those? I mean, I think the Carton Council page is going to upload that the 360 video showing the the process of how cartons are pulped up into fiber. Um, Tetra Pak has a great sustainability webpage as well. I think tetrapack.com and there's a sustainability button basically right at the top or a tab that you can go to. And, you know, we have all of our, our life cycle analysis, LCAs posted publicly. They're all, you know, independent LCAs done. They're peer reviewed. So we don't do our own internal ones. They're not fast tracked. Uh, we spend a lot of time and in, in investment into making sure that the data that we use and, and report out to people about, again, why they're selecting our packaging for the format that they would like to use to put their product in um, is, is valid and it's true. And so good links on that. And the last little thing I, I totally forgot to touch on is if you can't recycle curbside, and this is something that we're also working on, you can mail them in to, there's a few mills that they have, we have an established program that you can, you know, throw them in a box. But to your point, um, we want to not have it be like an arduous process because you know the easiest thing to do is put it in that trash can instead of putting them in a box, flattening them, and then mailing them somewhere else. And so, um, we're, well, I think we need to update that program a little bit. And maybe you know we cover. I've heard of another organization covering the cost of that for consumers. And, you know, instead of having the consumer pay to mail their their cartons off, is there a way that that we can kind of work on that? And so, there's some ideas that I'm trying to drum up with that, but. The greatest thing we're going to work on is, is household access and then educating um, again consumers that cartons are recyclable widely and, and they're a high demand and the fiber is a great uh, resource right now for mills. And uh, we just announced that in Michigan, actually 2.75 million households now can actually recycle cups and cartons. And that's a whole other conversation of yeah. the partnerships we've done with Food Packaging Institute. But um, a lot of good things are happening, I think, in the packaging world in, in just sustainable material management. Uh, and I think the brands and manufacturers are behind it. And I'll remind me to connect you up to, I, I saw this and they're going to be on the podcast here later, but I saw this app uh, that these guys are developing called Scrap, um, S-C-R-A-P-P, and where they're creating like a reward system so that somebody just scans the UPC code and then it tells them what to do based on their geography. I think there could be some really cool things there where, you know, maybe you're not, you know, you're not having to pay somebody, but somebody is rewarded for doing, you know, for doing the right thing from a recycling standpoint. I think it's genius what they've done. It seems so simple, but um, I thought it was really cool. So I'll, I'll connect you up with them as well. And maybe there's some synergies because um, they're just, they're just starting off. 
yeah we're working with dan actually right now so like we, oh are we, you really that's great yeah totally yeah so yeah we I, again there's i think it's a great thing we're all connected to our phone and if it can be as easy as scanning it and letting it know you know people what to do with it and again having a point space incentive aside from a deposit that, that's only in 10 states uh, there needs to be something to drive it i really i firmly believe yeah. that I think with consumers had a reward mechanism we all like that endorphin kind of push uh, that that will make recycling and, and material management even greater Let's make recycling fun again. That's what I say. There you go. <laughs> uh, well, Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was super, one of, one of the most insightful podcasts I've done in, in a long time, uh, just in terms of my, just selfishly, like just learning and, and growing. So I really, really appreciate that. I hope some people can, um, you know, connect up with you either on LinkedIn or go to recyclecartons.com. Uh, check out tetrapack.com and make sure that all those are down there. Um, and, you know, we'll throw the scrap app in there as well, since you guys are already yeah, talking. Yeah. I, I think it's really cool. So I uh, really appreciate it, Jordan. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Adam. And congrats on your over 25,000 views as well. So you're doing a great job. Oh, man, I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that is it for another episode of the People of Packaging podcast. Thanks for listening. It would mean so much to us if you would like and share and subscribe to this podcast. We want as many people to know about the incredible people that we have in the packaging industry because we believe that packaging is awesome. Thanks again.